You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, friends. My name is Sally, and I'll be reading selected portions of First Samuel chapter 14. Please follow on the screen behind me. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his armor-bearer, Let us go over to the Philistine garrison. He did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the pomegranate cave. Those with him included Ahijah, the nephew of Phinehas, the priest. The people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other, in front of Michmesh and on the other in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said, Do all that is in your heart. I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, We will cross over and show ourselves to them. If they say, Wait until we come to you, then we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. And the Philistines hailed Jonathan, Come up to us, we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed, climbed up on his hands and feet, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer, and they killed about twenty men. And there was a panic in the camp. The garrison trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very big panic. The watchmen of Saul saw the multitude dispersing here and there. Saul said, Count and see who has gone from us. And behold, Jonathan was not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. Then Saul went into battle. Every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves heard the Philistines fleeing, they too followed hard after them. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Saul laid an oath on the people. Cursed be the man who eats food until I am avenged on my enemies. But Jonathan had not heard the oath, so he dipped in a honeycomb. Jonathan heard about the oath and said, My father had troubled the land. How much better if the people had eaten freely, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. The people were very faint. They took sheep and slaughtered them and ate them with the blood, sinning against the Lord. Saul said, Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. Saul built an altar to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? But the Lord did not answer him that day. And Saul said to the army, Know how the sin has arisen today, even if it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt be is in in me or in Jonathan, give the lot. Jonathan and Saul were taken. 
Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. When Saul had taken the kingship, he fought against all his enemies. Wherever he turned, he routed them. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much, Sally. Hello, good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Welcome back to Big Picture. Uh, the more things change, the more that things stay the same. It's uh, great to continue our adventure through uh, the book of Samuel, and we're in chapter 14, and it's uh, a famous story of Jonathan initiating a victory, which turns out to be a route to the Philistines, and uh, at the same time, Saul is going crazy. He's going absolutely crazy. There's a lot of context which we need from the chapter before. I'll explain that in a moment, but uh, I just wanted to set out the big point right up front, and uh, what this passage is telling us is it's a case study in Saul and Jonathan, and the big message is there's a difference between sincere inner faith and outward religiosity, which comes about because people feel rejected by God. There's a difference between sincere inner faith and religiosity, which comes from feeling rejected by God. That's the big idea in this passage. But I want to tell you a story. Uh, for this story, you have to work with me here and imagine you are a teenage male South African in the 1990s in a boarding school of 500 boys and you're passionate about rugby. Can we go? You're all in that headspace. Okay, so the biggest thing in your world is rugby, and there's an annual fixture against the rival team down the, down the road, the rival school, the, the arch enemy, and it's every year you have this annual rugby fixture against these uh, folks. Now, what I want to tell you, in one year in the mid-90s, one 13-year-old boy single-handedly got this rugby fixture cancelled. The facts are as follows. A chap called Warren, Warren Garmany is his name, got pink eye, he contracted conjunctivitis, and because this is highly contagious, he got put into the quarantine at the school sick bay. Now, uh, it happened to be exam time, and uh, he wasn't allowed to write his exams because he had pink eye, and it's contagious. So Warren Garmany, who had a business mind at age 13, decided that what he was going to do was uh, exploit the opportunity and sell his pink eye so that other people could skip their exams. So he put the word out there that for $2, you could come to the window of the quarantine and run your finger through Warren Garmany's eye and give yourself pink eye. Well, there was a queue of boys outside the window, uh, all giving themselves pink eye. However, one guy who got pink eye decided, he was capitalistically minded, this is a business opportunity. I can undercut the market and started selling pink eye for $1. Soon, and this is a cautionary tale in economics, everybody, soon you could get pink eye for free. Because everywhere you looked and touched, there was pink eye in the school. And it got to a point where almost everyone in the school got pink eye. And our headmaster had to call up the other school and say, sorry, the game is off, we've all got pink eye. And the legend has it that it was Warren Garmany's fault. Single-handedly took out that entire event. I'll get back to that story in a moment. I wanted to make two points today. The first is we're going to look at the sincere faith of Jonathan. And then we're going to look at the religion of Saul. 
It's a religion of rejection. The sincere faith of Jonathan, and then we're going to look at Saul in uh, counterpoise, the religion of rejection. Now, the background to the story is really important. What's happened in chapter 13 is the Philistines have invaded the Israelite territory. Uh, the Israelite army is in a mess. They're in disarray. They've barely got weapons. They're hiding in caves. They're terrified by the Philistines. The Philistines are totally in charge. Saul has a moment where he offers an unlawful sacrifice. He messes it up. He disobeys God's command. And uh, God says to Saul, I reject you as the king. I'm going to take the kingship out of your hands because you've disobeyed my command. And Saul, from that point, starts to descend into some kind of a madness. But that's a really important context for the background here. The army's trembling. They're in caves. Saul is suffering under this rejection from God. And what comes out of this is chapter 14 and this incredible moment where Jonathan takes on the Philistines at this outpost. Now, Jonathan is a person who evidently is walking very closely with the Lord, unlike Saul. He's walking closely with the Lord. It doesn't say that exactly in the passage, but we can infer it. We can see that this is a man who... uh, loves God, and who's not cowering in a cave, but is actually wanting to walk with God and knows God and is close to God. You might ask me, what do you mean when you say this is a person who's close to God? Well, I want to put it in terms of the heart today. Someone who is walking closely with God has a soft heart to God, has an open heart to God, and has a heart which knows God's heart. Such a man is Jonathan, as the story reveals. Are you walking closely with the Lord is a question which this passage begs. How is your heart with the Lord? Are you walking closely with Him? And uh, what is amazing about this passage is that uh, Jonathan acts with faith. He acts with an instinct of faith. And something incredible happens, not only in his life, but for the whole nation. And so what I'd love to do is for us to take some time just to look at a framework of faith which Jonathan is actually operating off here. And so I'll just explain the four steps of his faith, and uh, then we'll look at it, uh, find it in in the text itself. So here are four steps to Jonathan's faith instinct. Step number one is you've got to show up. If you want to operate out of faith, like Jonathan, you've got to show up. Step number one. Step number two is... uh, exploring what may be in the Lord. You've got to show up, step number one. Step number two, having showed up, then use your imagination and some godly curiosity to explore what may be in the Lord. Step number three, having done step one and two, you need to stand on some universal principle about God. Step one, show up. Step two, explore what could be in God. And step three, Fix yourself firmly on some universal truth or principle about God and about who he is, his nature and his character. And then step number four, having done one, two, and three, is take a calculated faith risk, paying attention to the signs about you. Show up, explore, stand on something about God, and then number four, take a calculated faith risk, paying attention to some of the signs that God may be giving you around. Uh, To put this slightly differently, use some natural intelligence, step number one. Step number two, use some imagination and curiosity. Step number three, examine God's CV for who he is, what he's like, his, his track record, his character. And then step number four, have some godly courage.
And this is exactly what Jonathan does. So let's look at step number one here. I'm reading from verse 1, verse 4, and then uh, 5 to 6. Jonathan, the son of Saul, so he's showing up here, step number one. Everyone else is cowering. No one else is showing up. Jonathan shows up. He pokes his head out of the cave, and he goes looking for trouble with the Philistines. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. He did not tell his father. Verse 4, Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other in front of Michmash, and the other in front of Geba. These are actual places. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the armor bearer, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Jonathan shows up. He uses natural intelligence. There are 30,000 charioteers of the Philistines, but there's one strategic location. It's a very steep valley, which is being described here. It's got these two steep V-shaped valleys, and there's two outposts on the top. It's very narrow, so you can't get a lot of troops through. It's a strategic point in the battle. And if it's only being guarded by a small company of soldiers, Jonathan knows, just using natural intelligence, if we take these two, this position, we can control a lot of the foot traffic and the heavy artillery of the Philistines. So he's using his smarts. He's showing up. He's looking for, hey, God, how can you use me? Step number one. Step number two He's like, okay, is that me? Is that just my natural intelligence at work here, my strategy? Well, let me explore, step number two, what may be possible. And so he says this to his armor bearer in verse six, it may be. I'm not, I'm not saying it is. I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's not like I've got an email from God, but it may be that the Lord will work for us. Step number two, he's exploring in God, what could be? I'm showing up, what could be now? Step number two. Step number three, can you remember? You're not filling me with confidence out there. Okay, you're going to stand on some universal principle of God. And then he says this about God. And this is, this is a statement of truth. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Sometimes by many, sometimes by few. We know that about God, he says to the armor bearer. I'm, I'm using my natural intelligence. I'm exploring possibilities in God. But I do know this about God. He's a deliverer. He's a deliverer. Look, sometimes it's just very small. Sometimes it's enormous. Either way, I know my God. He's a deliverer. Then, step number four, he takes a calculated risk, paying attention to the signs. This is verse 8. Jonathan said, we will cross over and show ourselves to them. If they say, wait until we come to you, then we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. Isn't that wonderful? Four steps to faith. He's not saying this is definite. God told me, our angels said this, and I was praying, and I've got a word from God. He's just, he's exploring, but he's building on his faith. He's got a faith instinct. Let me read what a commentator writes about this. Uh, I love this quote. This is by uh, one of my favorite uh, Bible authors. He says this, Sometimes we have a feeling that we ought to do something, although we have no special guidance. Jonathan had no special instructions. God had not said to him, Go to the camp. It was just a feeling that something ought to be done. He moves tentatively. Jonathan is a man of faith. But his faith 
takes the form of instinct. He simply believes that the Lord will give them victory and that the numbers are not important. He has a total faith in the Lord's ability to deliver Israel regardless of the seeming desperate plight of the Israelites. He says, perhaps, in our version it's got it may be. He says, it may be. He does not know precisely what will happen. Sometimes faith will take the form of a desire and instinct of feeling. We think God is calling us to do something, but we are not absolutely sure. Often the desires of our heart are the whispers of the Spirit. We must take notice when we have a desire in our heart to do something for God. Well, as the story goes, Jonathan clobbers the Philistines. Verse 12, and the Philistines hail Jonathan. Come up to us and we will show you a thing, they say. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. We've got our sign. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Okay, this is, he's in the most vulnerable thing. He's climbing up a steep cliff. He's like, whatever, 50 guys above him. Easy to take him out. He's doing the impossible. The sign is actually the more difficult thing, not the more easy thing. He's like struggling up this cliff, rock climbing. I've tried it. It's jolly hard. Up he's going. And uh, he says to his armor bearer, uh, come up with me. God, the Lord has given them. He climbed, uh, verse 13, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they killed about 20 men. And there was a panic in the camp. The garrison trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Isn't that wonderful? God gives a great victory. God gives a great victory. Uh, reading on. So this uh, company, 20 of them die, uh, but then they start panicking. The panic spreads, and then the, the panic spreads to the whole army. Uh, verse 16, the watchman of Saul saw the multitude. So the, the Israel army was scared, but they're watching, and they see this on, on, on the cliffs. They saw the multitude dispersing here and there. This is verse 16. Verse 17, Saul, uh, sorry, jump to verse 20. Then Saul went into battle. So then he sees the Philistines scrambling. So he's like, okay, guys, we're off. Let's go and get them. Every Philistine's sword was against his fellow Philistine, and there was great confusion. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves heard the Philistines fleeing, they too followed hard after them. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Then they start routing the army. Here's the point. Faith is contagious. Faith is contagious. It just took one guy. It just took one guy with faith in his heart for what could be standing on who God is, exploring tentatively, operating out of some kind of an instinct, having cultivated it from years and years and years and years of walking closely with the Lord and suddenly identifying an opportunity and using his brain and using his spirit and bringing a friend along with him. And then suddenly the thing opens up and he realizes God's given us a moment here. And he risks, he takes a dangerous move, he's on an adventure for God, and it all seems to be flowing in one direction, and then God comes through and does something incredible. And the people around who are cowering and trembling suddenly get faith too. And the whole nation is risen up, and they all start screaming out after the Philistines. Faith is contagious. Faith is contagious. And just like Warren Garmany, one guy who brought down a whole event, one guy with contagious faith can do the exact opposite and bring down a whole army. If only we would be used by God.
seems to be the suggestion here. So let me ask you a tough question. Let me ask you to ask yourself a tough question. Do people around you catch faith or do they catch apathy? Either way, they're catching something from you. Because Saul is cowering in the cave, in the pomegranate cave, and the people around him are catching cowardice. But the people with Jonathan are catching faith. What do the people around you catch? Question mark. Uh, one more little point on this uh, is verse 7. It's such a beautiful verse. It should be one of our ECP mottos. We have many mottos. This should be one more. Uh, verse 7. The armor bearer said, so Jonathan says, hey, let's go on this crazy suicide run up the, up the face of a cliff, sheer cliff and then get whacked by these guys. But don't worry, God is with us. Trust me. And then the armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. I am with you, heart and soul. You see, the armor bearer knew what was in Jonathan's heart. Knew this was a good man who walked with the Lord. And if you're saying this, I know what's in your heart, I can go with you. So this, I would love to be a principal at ECP. Uh, We can call it a life lesson for now. Never underestimate the power of a godly friend who knows what's in your heart. Because doing this faith framework, and this is maybe our fifth step, doing this faith framework is pretty hard as is, What you really need are friends when you feel like God is asking you to do something. Friends, you know what's in your heart and can go, nah, I don't really think so. Or, hey, I've been watching you. I think this is God. Crazy idea. Can we be a church of friends? Can we let people into our hearts to see even the junk? Because if you let them in to see what's in your heart, when you really need a friend to face the Philistines, then you've got a friend. Faith is not a solo project, as uh, the armor bearer and Jonathan so clearly show. Uh, It's always good to ask how this passage is applied to the preacher's own life. Well, when I was thinking about, do I take a big crazy step forward to uh, start this thing called ECP or not? This is one of the passages that God encouraged me with. All I want you to do is scramble up a sheer cliff and face some Philistines. Don't worry about who's following you. Don't worry if they're two people or three people. Don't worry about the numbers. I felt God challenged me, just like Jonathan, with this framework. Just tentatively just see where I'm leading you. Who knows what can follow? Okay, so a couple of questions for you. Uh, What's in your heart? What's in your heart? What has God put in your heart to do? What are you seeing around you? What are you seeing in the land of the Israel? Where are the Philistines occupying God's country? Where do you feel God is calling you to push back the enemy, as it were? Where is faith arising in you today? What are you seeing? Step number one. Where is God asking you to show up? Or are you cowering in a cave? What's in your heart? What is God asking you to do for him? What is God asking you to do for him? Where do you need to do steps one, two, three, and four? And then my second question to you is uh, maybe a painful one. Do you have godly friends who knows what's going on in your heart? Do you have such friends? If not, get yourself an armor bearer. Okay, uh, going to have to uh, speed up the pace a little bit here. Yeah? Uh, the second point is looking at Saul's religion of rejection. Saul's religion of rejection. We've seen how Jonathan operates in the realm of faith. Well, let's look at the bad example which is Saul and his, what I call, this is my expression, Saul's religion of 
rejection. So you're at work, the boss comes to you and says, listen, buddy, your performance is woeful. You're terrible. You're you're really bad at your job. Uh, I can't wait to fire you. I'm just looking for someone who can replace you. And then in your same department, there's some young guy who's under you, by the way. He reports to you. This guy is great with the clients. People love him. His numbers are through the roof. And you just think, you know what? This guy is going to take my job. Well, that's where Saul finds himself. God comes and says, hey, you rebelled against me. You broke my command. Didn't like what you did. I'm going to take the kingdom from you. At that moment, he feels rejected by God and paranoia kicks in. Who's, who's going to take my kingdom from Who is this guy? Where, where, where is it? My kingdom's going. Like, he starts to panic. But, but a person with power who panics, not a nice guy. That's what happens in chapter 14. That's where we're going in chapter 14. Chapter 13 explains the conduct of chapter 14. And uh, Saul starts to, um, starts to go crazy. What he should have done is he should have gone, Lord, when, when I make a mistake, I know there are consequences. I know I can be removed from my post. I understand that. But Lord, would you forgive me? Can, at least we, can we at least our relationship be connected, Lord? He should have repented. He should have made right with God. Look, if he loses his job, he loses his job. But at least be close and tight with God, right? At least have a soft heart with God. At least walk with God. This is what David would do, as we're going to see in Samuel. You make a mistake. There's a consequence. That's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay if you repent and if you walk to God. And, and if, you, if you apply the faith framework when you sin, show up with God. Explore God. Could you possibly forgive me? You, you read God's CV. He's slow to anger. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He wants to forgive. He wants relationship and harmony with you and unity with you. He wants that. And then you take a risk that God actually wants to forgive you. And then you repent and you make right with him. Saul does nothing of the sort. He labors under God's rejected me. And that feeling that God is against you and has rejected you is a rot for the bones and will cause you to do all sorts of destruction, as uh, the story shows. So the first thing is this, is uh, because Saul is laboring under this uh, feeling of deep rejection by God, he starts developing these very deep insecurities about himself, about his identity, about his future, He starts to become paranoid, insecure, defensive. But the key thing is he's he's not right with God. He's laboring under this rejection. It's so bad that when the Philistines are on the run, and we've run out of time to read all the verses, but uh, this is 16 and 17. When the Philistines are on the run and Saul should rise up and go and chase them, do you know what the first thing he does is? He calls a roll call. He's like, it's time to go. We just go and whack the Philistines. And he's like, no, 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 no. We need to work out who started this and who is going to be the hero and who the newspapers are going to write about on Monday. I need to know who my enemy here is, who's the biggest threat, who the people are going to love, who's missing, and who did this to the Philistines. He's all about himself. He calls a roll call. And then they discover, oh, it's Jonathan. And then he's like... Don, my own son. My, oh, wait, hang on. The son, the prince, could be heir to the throne. 
Could be him. He could take my job. He starts descending into this madness against his own family. Those who feel rejected by God carry deep insecurity about their identity and their future. Just like Saul. All right, next observation is uh, he's rejected by God. He knows that in his heart. But often what people do when they feel rejected by God is they try and compensate by having this like huge display of external religious spiritual looking stuff. There's nothing going on in the heart inside, but they try and do a whole lot of spiritual religious Christian looking things on the external. And because Saul feels rejected by God, he's light on inner spirituality and he heavily compensates with religious devices on the outside. Sometimes you come across people who've grown up in a home where the parents are not really in close relationship with God. Their spiritual life is not is pretty dead and yet they insist on religious rules. Got to go to church, can never miss a service, can never do this, can never do that. Just rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. But there's no, there's no connection to God. There's no, there's no power, there's no life. Light on inner spirituality, heavy on external religious devices. It's all putting up appearances. And sadly, this is exactly like Saul. So these are a couple of highlights of uh, Saul who's not happy inside with God starts to do a whole lot of things on the outside to make him look kind of religious. He needs a priest, so he gets a priest for hire, a hija. Now, what Sally read for us just now. Just now. Unfortunately, if you've been tracking with the story, a hija is a descendant of Phinehas, who was from the cursed line by God in, back in chapter 3. He's, he's just hanging out with the wrong spiritual crowd, but he needs to look religious, so he's hanging out with spiritual people, but they're just as toxic as he is. Mistake number one. Mistake number two, remember in chapter four how they took out the ark to win the battle? And that was a big no-no. You remember that whole story? And the ark got lost. What does Saul do? Oh, I need to look religious. I've lost my connection with God, so I need to look like the spiritual guy. Bring out the ark. That's the second thing. He's, he's just making mistake after mistake, but all in the name of looking kind of spiritual and looking like a good Sunday Christian. The third thing he does is he starts using language like, I'm going to take an oath in the name of God that if anyone eats food in this army, I'm going to kill them. I swear to God, I'm making an oath that I will kill anyone who eats. Like, I am this, and don't test me, I'm so spiritual, I'll keep my oath. It's this, it's this false, boasting, empty, religious language, which is just crazy. Dude, your army's on the run. You've got no weapons. God has given you the Philistines. And the first thing you do is take a roll call. The second thing you do is you tell your, your team not to eat. Guys, mandatory fast. It's like, what is that? Who goes into battle like that? Well, just so long as I look like the holy guy making oaths to God. He's lost connection with God and he's just he's descending into folly. But it's all dressed up as religious good stuff. It's not at all. The men uh, are so hungry, they start eating meat with uh, blood in it. Again, a big no-no. But then he acts all sanctimonious, like he is, you know, moral virtue itself. Oh, guys, you can't eat meat with the blood in it. 
that's a terrible thing to do. And he acts all sanctimonious like he is the, the arbiter of all uh, holiness. But he's the, in the story, he's, he's the most unholy of the lot. And so I put it like this. Those who feel rejected by God can overcompensate with outward religious performance and neglect spiritual substance. Unfortunately, this makes you very dangerous. I mean, we can kind of joke about it, but he's a dangerous guy, Saul. I mean, who imperils the army by saying no food? He's, he's already jeopardized his army. It gets worse. His own child, who doesn't know about this oath about the food, eats some honey. He's in violation of this sacred oath that Saul has sworn. And then uh, what happens next is terrifying, if you're in Saul's shoes. It's his worst nightmare in verse 36. And we can flash this up, thanks, uh, Darius. Verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Listen to this. And this should send a slow chill up your spine. But the Lord did not answer him that day. He's lost touch with God to the extent that there's this terrifying silence. But someone who's laboring under this rejection complex is like, well, this can't possibly be my fault, says Saul. It must be the person who violated my curse about not eating the food. It can't possibly be me that God is cross with. Because people who fear rejection from God just find it so scary to actually engage with that concept. He's, he's trying to look good from the outside, just no self-examination on the inside. And so then he blames Jonathan, and one thing leads to another. And his own child is now up to be killed because of some violation of some oath that Saul has made. Just because he needs to blame someone else for his own shortcomings with God. And he's about to do it. He is about to... Can you imagine killing your own child so that you can honor your oath, so that you can come across as religious? It is truly, truly terrifying. But fortunately, and the writer makes a big point of this in verse 46. Sorry, verse 45. The people, like, okay, we've had enough of this Saul guy. The people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? He's the hair of the story. Not one, of, one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so he did not die. And they all stick up for him. Stop the madness. Jonathan's a good guy. He's full of faith. Let's end this. And Jonathan's life is saved. And so uh, at this point, let's put it like this. Those who feel rejected by God can be ruthless, yet still looking religious. Well, this is, can be close to home, because in this pattern, I also identify these things in my own life. A while back, I was threatened by someone, and in my own life, I, because you feel, when you're feeling threatened by someone, it's often because you are not necessarily right with God in, entirely. You're not feeling his total acceptance and love of you. And so you've got to take it out on other people. And uh, you can become insecure about your own calling. You can overcompensate and make yourself look more holy than you are on the outside. 
And then you can also be ruthless with your words, with your actions, with your deeds. This is in all of us. But he has the wonderful news and the truth of Christianity is that in Jesus Christ, we have anti-rejection. In Jesus Christ, we have anti-rejection. The whole message of Christ coming to earth is to save you from your sins so that under your sin, you would no longer be in this position of being rejected by God, but you could be reunited to Him, reharmonized to Him, accepted by God, just as if you were Christ, loved by God, welcomed in, unified, harmonized with Him. That is the message of Christianity. It should not be that Christians labor under a feeling of rejection from God. In Christ, who has taken the penalty and the punishment for all our sin, and risen from the grave, in proof of it, we should always feel like we have the acceptance and the love of God. And when you have that in your heart, you stop feeling threatened by other people. You stop having to demonstrate how holy, how acceptable you are in spiritual matters. And you can relax about your life and your future and your calling. You can become free. You can become like Jonathan. You can go, I want to show up. God, how do you want to use me? I know you're for me. I know you're with me. I know you want to use me. I know you're acceptable. I'm acceptable to you. How do you want to use me, Lord? Instead of being like Saul, where you just get, you, you just implode deeper and deeper and deeper into your own warped sense of not knowing who you are and and just being an absolute liability and disaster and danger to the people around you. All in the name of religion, which is the worst of it all. So that is the big message of uh, Christianity. Because someone did go up a hill to face death. The hill of Golgotha. Someone did take a curse from the Father. That's Jesus. Upon himself. So that you would not be rejected. So what Jesus has done for us. So let me ask you some questions. Are you ever insecure about your identity and your future? Can I go for the strike at the heart and say you should really examine if you feel totally accepted by God? If you're wobbling in your career or don't know who you are or where you're being called to or you're feeling threatened by that, go for the jugular. Don't be afraid to look into your own heart. And say, God, am I laboring under some sort of like I'm not acceptable to you or you've rejected me on some level? And if you feel that, then you run straight to Jesus. And you say, Jesus, in you I am acceptable. I know this. I know that you love me. And I know that you've got good things for me. In the shape and format that uh, you see fit. Next question. Do you overcompensate with outward religious performance at the jeopardy of internal spiritual peace and reality? If so, if you're constantly having to show and demonstrate yourself, perhaps you need to just do business with the Lord and just get free and just be loved by Him and find your acceptance on the cornerstone in Him. Do you act ruthlessly against threats? Possibly the issue is your own sense of not being right with God. Once again, I point you to Christ who loves you, who wants to help you, and uh, who wants you to feel, above all things, unrejected by God. Shall we pray? You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. 
You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg. 